If you want to hear about news in Central Texas, check out our podcast, KUT Weekend. It's updated Fridays and brings you the big feature reports, interviews, and stories produced right here in Austin out of our KUT newsroom. Updated Friday afternoons at weekend.kut.org. Which is the number one chocolate drink? For two pizzas for the price of one. It tastes so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. The history of slavery in the Caribbean is traumatic. It's a difficult legacy, and I don't think that it's been well processed. So the serving of tea becomes this way to sort of address that, to consider how can we move forward? Uh, What does it look like to think about healing in a space like that? Thanks for joining us for This Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today's secret ingredient is bush tea. Uh, Before we even get into what that is or how that's punctuated, uh, I I, I want to introduce our guest who is going to guide us through the idea of bush tea, Anna Lee Davis. Anna Lee is the Caribbean Arts Manager for the British Council, a part-time tutor uh, in the Bachelor of Fine Arts program at the Barbados Community College. Um, More importantly, Anna Lee is not only a descendant of a sugar plantocracy, but she's had the courage to actually embrace what that means. Um, And she is with us today with an incredible tea set that is leaking as I uh, raise it to my lips. Uh, And um, Annalie, welcome to The Secret Ingredient. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Let's dive right in. Bush tea. Um, You you can't hear the parentheses around bush, but uh, but they're there. And why? Why are they there? Well, bush tea has a kind of a covert history. Um, So it's it's a tea that would have been drunk um, historically by the enslaved and the indentured. Um, and it's something that would have been kept maybe in the back of the house. Uh, it's not something that you would have served in porcelain tea services. Um, it, it would have been used for sort of medicinal purposes. Um, so the bush is in parentheses because it's this sort of um, covert sort of practice that, that doesn't have um, a lot of visibility in sort of general society. And it would have been used mostly by kind of working class people that would have come down from the enslaved and the indentured. So describe for our radio audience a little bit about what you're serving us, because you are our first guest we've ever had live in the studio for The Secret Ingredient, right? I'm right. Yes. My, 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 my history, my memory Certainly serves me. the first live me. guest. The first live guest. Well, we've yeah. done shows live, but this is like the first time We've ever had, had a guest a, here human being interrupting right? into the cave, <laughs> into the into the recording space. That could well be. And you brought with you a teapot and these incredible teacups. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about, like, describe for the radio audience what you're serving and what you're serving it in and why that's significant. Okay. So uh, I work out of the Southern Caribbean in an island called Barbados, and uh, that has been shaped very much by the plantation economy. And uh, the, the we were sort of like the crown and the jewel in terms of providing a lot of uh, economic uh, value to Britain through the production of sugar. Um, Sugar was then used to sweeten tea in Britain, which after water was the second most drunk beverage in the world. Um, But 
in sort of the abolition period, there was um, a British poet called Robert Southey that referred to tea as a blood-sweetened beverage, meaning that the tea was brought in from plantations in the East, sweetened by sugar that came in from plantations in the West Indies. But parallel to the drinking of that sort of more traditional black tea, sweetened with sugar, uh, there was this tradition of drinking bush tea. So what I wanted to do was sort of conflate these things. Uh, So the objects that you have in front of you that you're drinking the bush tea out of are made from um, clay from uh, Chalky Mount on the east coast of Barbados in an area called the Scotland District. And it was called the Scotland District because it looks a bit like areas of Scotland and we would have had Scottish indentured labour that came into Barbados. So this is um, locally harvested clay that's making this tea service. But the The teacups that you have um, actually have in these shards and the shards are from the late 1700s, early 1800s. And they have been um, collected off the ground uh, where I live and work. So I live and work on a on a dairy farm that was a plantation from the 1660s. Um, And when I walk the fields, uh, these shards turn up. Uh, so I thought that it might be interesting to um, to create this tea service that sort of speaks back to this tradition of drinking tea, to the relationship with Britain, um, and to kind of insert these shards. Now, they're not perfectly sort of embedded into the tea service, so they're these kind of... They're mounted in there. They've got some holes. So it means that sometimes when you're drinking, it spills a little bit. It makes me think about how history is kind of holy. It doesn't holy, not in terms of uh, spiritual, but holy in terms of having these gaps. And so these fragments um, speak to a lot of the absences or the some of the stories that haven't come to the surface, kind of like bush tea. Wow. So mm. what's the tea this made of? Okay, so what you have here... Uh, is a combination of four things. There's West India bay leaf, uh, there's blue vervain, uh, there's fever grass, which you may know as lemongrass, and there's Circe bush. Um, so these are plants that I find growing uh, in abandoned sugarcane fields, right? So mm-hmm. by the late 1600s, Barbados was pretty much mapped out. Uh, most of the trees of the forest were felled and this uh, entire island was a basically one large plantation. <clears throat> um, the sugar industry is now coming to an end. We have one factory left. There were 500 windmills at one point. We used to produce something like 200,000 tons of sugar a year. Now we're down to, I think, less than 10,000 tons. So there are a lot of these sort of rab lands, uh, sort of abandoned sugarcane fields that uh, instead of having sugarcane, which was a plant that was very sort of formally introduced into the landscape in a particular kind of way, um, It's interesting to me to see now these kind of wild plants growing up. Um, And so these, uh, the bush tea that you're drinking is made from these plants that are coming out of of these former sugarcane fields. And it's interesting to think about sugar was initially thought of as having had medicinal properties. And so an apothecary without sugar 
was used to refer to a state of utter helplessness. Mm. But now, of course, we know sugar is associated with obesity and diabetes, and it's not so healthy. Um, but I, I think that it's interesting that these wild plants are actually uh, an apothecary because they have these healing properties around them. But it's interesting that they've just sort of come up of their own accord. Uh, they're ignoring the fields' borders, and they're just kind of coming up and growing. And they're seen as very unimportant plants. They're not these beautiful kind of uh, tropical flowers that you think of with huge, beautiful uh, flowers on them, like maybe, I don't know, hibiscus or ginger lily or hanging heliconia. They're these kind of, um, they're rendered as sort of unimportant, but they actually have a lot of medicinal value to them. So the Circe bush would have been used at some point as um, a form of birth control by enslaved women, uh, a way to terminate pregnancies. Um the blue vervain you could use for respiratory problems, maybe. The West India bay leaf is an anti-aging, um, has anti-aging qualities. Um, and then some of these would also be used in a bush bath. So some people would say, but the blue vervain, if you'd been beaten, you could steep water and you would sit in a bath. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what you're drinking. You're going to have clear your respiratory, your lungs, uh, feel younger, <laughs> rejuvenated. Um, but that's what's in your cup. Fantastic. And there were tra traditions of, of, of consuming these on, the, on, on these islands over, the, over time. Yes. So these would have been used, I guess, as a Kapoor man's pharmacy, right? Yeah. And were they, were they indigenous to the islands or were they brought over with people? Um, yeah, most things would have been brought over. There are very few plants that would have been indigenous to Barbados. They're just a couple of plants. There's a, a, a kind of a vine. and But most of these would have made their way in, um, I guess, on ships and coming maybe from South America. Um, but they would normally be used, I would say, by the enslaved population and by the indentured population. I mean, I think also what um, archaeologists have been finding through looking at these um, at these shards that are that are in the teacups is that there's a sense that black and white Barbadians lived very separate lives. But what they're finding is that these shards were turning up in both enslaved villages and in the you know around the sort of the planter house, and that there was a lot more mixing that, than that, that we would like to think. Um, uh, taking place and they're able to time these very clearly because when ships came out from from the UK from Britain to to the Caribbean there would be like an insurance list and if a ship went down you would be able to report it to the Lloyds Bank and and these patterns would be timed uh, would be put down to within five to six years so they would come from Staffordshire from factories or whatever and these have lasted very well of course because they're hard porcelain um, some of the pieces there's one this clay piece in here um, would have been then made from the local clay um, the gutters that would have moved from the factories uh, from the windmill to the factory of the, the sugar that was squeezed out of the sugar cane or the liquid would be made in these clay gutters and also the cones that you would put sugar in there were these clay cones that would have a hole in the bottom you put the sugar in and the molasses would drip out and you'd create muscovado sugar uh, they tend to be earthenware and they're not fired as hard so they would break down quicker over time so archaeologists really use pottery to kind of figure out where these things came from and it shows that Barbados was a globalized space because there was trading happening from everywhere and can you tell us a little bit about the history of slavery in Barbados 
Yeah, so uh, in 1627, the English settled. Uh, when they came onto the island, there there was not the uh, human presence of indigenous people. They had left. We're not sure exactly why. Um, they started growing things like tobacco. Um, but then sugar is something that, that just worked very well on our landscape. We have a very thin layer of topsoil. It's a limestone island. Sugar has a shallow root system. It keeps the soil together very well. And Barbados really became like the one of the wealthiest colonies for for Britain at the time. Um, initially, indentured labor came in from Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, um, and uh, then the industry grew. Uh, and to be able to, I guess, provide enough labor for that, uh, enslaved labor was brought in from Western South Africa in into Barbados, um, and I think probably yeah, at the height. At the height of the of the uh, industry, we were producing a couple hundred thousand tons of, of sugar to feed this appetite that was growing in, the, in, in Britain for sweetened things, which, of course, was only used by popes and royalty. It was a very expensive uh, product. And then it became more uh, common in, in British life through drinking tea. Uh, so you would you would drink tea as a moment of pause to break the workday as a way to engage with your fellow workers. Um, and so I see the serving of this bush tea as a way to kind of pause, to have conversation and to uh, to think about um, history, uh, to think about tea, to think about sugar. And as a kind of a decolonial sort of act, um, it was interesting when I took it to London a few weeks ago. Uh, I realized that a lot of people in the UK didn't really think about slavery in relationship to Britain. And um, I, I remembered watching David Olusoga's program on BBC, Britain's Forgotten Slave Owners, and he said when people in Britain think about slavery, they think about the American South. And I found that so interesting because, of course, in the Caribbean, our relationship to slavery is through Britain. Um, and that's all we teach in our history classes. But they're not being taught it. So when I was doing the Bushti services in London, mm. I was surprised that people were not aware of this history. And it felt like a kind of an amnesia or erasure. Um, and so taking the tea service to London and serving bush tea in a former Barclays bank, uh, on Baker Street um, was a really kind of interesting thing to do to be able to have that conversation. Emancipation happened in the British-owned, the British-administered islands. And what what time was that? Before in the U.S. in the 1830s. 1830s, yeah. okay. So you were 56, I think. But right? at, we were 65. 65. But after, but after that, obviously, there maintained a very colonial relationship, a very sort of uh, domination kind of relationship between the, the, the owners and the workers in the islands. Yeah, I mean, the, the post-emancipation period was difficult. You know, of course, enslaved people are then, you know, working on the plantation. I think what was interesting that in terms of, of race relations was that there was an alliance that had been built between indentured and enslaved labor. Uh, in an attempt to remain a certain retain a certain level of purity, an idea about whiteness as a superior kind of race, uh, legislation started to change in the post-emancipation period to um, disrupt that alliance between the white indentured and the black enslaved population. Uh, so you would have had poor whites 
who would now become overseers of the enslaved population. Uh, and then sometime after that, at the turn of the century, there was the Panama Canal, when we lost a third of our population in 19, between 1904 and 07, moved to Panama to work on building the Panama Canal. And that mm. really became an important moment in our history because it was a even more than the Windrush moment, uh, some argue that this was a moment to sort of modernize the Caribbean through remittances. So the Panama Canal was really important for um, in the post-emancipation period uh, for, I guess, sending remittances home and creating an alternative in terms of um, economic security for people in the Caribbean. So you said Windrush. What? what? So the Windrush moment in the 50s when uh, just prior to independence, a lot of we would have been part of of Britain. So people could have moved and lived and worked there legally. So a lot of black Caribbean people moved to England. The Windrush was the name of a, a boat that transported people from the Caribbean to the United Kingdom. And they would have been people that would have worked in the transportation industry and in mm. nursing. Mm. Um, and, so and that, that was, was when? That was in the 50s. 1950s. Yeah. 1950s, okay. Yeah. Mm hmm. You know, I love I, I love this so much because I think especially this idea of something that is internal to being British or something that is integral to being British is drinking tea, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so taken for granted. And it's so much a part of the British day that to go back and analyze that and to say this actually represents this colonialist and s slave past that Britain had is a really powerful moment and, and, and symbol. And I wonder, how did you get into this? How did you, what is your history and, and how did you come upon this and doing this work? Mm -hmm. So my family have been in Barbados since 1648. There was a man by the name of Leonard Dowden that came from Somerset in uh, England to Barbados as a less than 10 acre man, uh, meaning that he couldn't vote. So if you had less than 10 acres, voting was around land ownership and so on. So he acquired, I think, four or five acres of land in St. Lucie in the north of the island. Uh, his fourth son uh, was our uh, descendant. So our family have been there for about 14 generations. Um, and of course, there's there's the legitimate family and there's the illegitimate family, which we all have in the Caribbean. It's how the Caribbean is sort of built. So, uh, so some of those um, family uh, members would have gone on to own sugar estates. Some were indentured labor on my mother's side was McConney from uh, Scotland. Um, and my father was a planter. So I was born and raised on several sugarcane plantations and um, just really interested in the history of how the model of the plantation has shaped the Caribbean and continues to do that until today. So I feel very connected to the landscape in a particular kind of way. And I'm interested in uh, so much isn't spoken about. Right. Uh, it's a complicated history and it's it's a difficult history. Um, so I'm inspired by something called phytoremediation, which is a scientific process that speaks to the capacity that some plants have to absorb toxins through its root structure. And we're basically living and working on a slaughterhouse, right? So the history of slavery in the Caribbean is, is traumatic. Um, it's a difficult legacy, and I don't think that it's been well processed. In, in a lot of ways, it's spoken about in a very polarized kind of way. 
So the idea of being able to remove toxins from a landscape is something that I think of uh, metaphorically when I produce a body of work. And so the serving of tea becomes this um, this way to uh, to sort of address that, uh, I think, to consider how, how can we move forward? Uh, what does it look like to think about healing in a space like that? And of course, with a history that, that my family embodies um, as a privileged uh, person uh, coming from a background of people uh, who would have owned land and certainly would have owned, uh, you know, enslaved people. Um, but it's also in, includes people that were enslaved and indentured. And I think that's what almost every body, physical body in the Caribbean embodies that complexity. So in some ways, we want to think it's very simplistic and the lines are drawn, but it's not. It's very complicated. So my interest, I think, is in trying to figure out a way forward. How do we create a language that allows us to move forward um, and to deal with that history? Um, so there's a project that this becomes part of called Unearthing Voices, and it's bringing together community archaeology, heritage studies and art practice. So I'm working with the Winchester University in the UK, uh, an archaeologist at Brown University in the US, um, and we're trying to find the site of an enslaved village on Walkers, which is the name of the farm that I live on. And to, um, in addition to finding these shards, if we can find the site of an enslaved village and create this uh, space that these three primary schools that are located near to where my studio and the farm is, that we open up this archaeological site on a plantation that is historically a closed space. And it becomes a site where the community can engage with that space, engage with that history. Um, it's like what Glissant said, the plantation as a closed space produced the open word Creole. How can we open up that site that other people feel ownership on that site? And how can we then create a, a pilot curriculum for primary school children to talk about and understand the transatlantic slave trade through material archaeology? So that when we speak about that history, there are many ways to speak about it. It's not always just in the polarization of race and um, how do you say like the epidermal way of thinking about relationships but how do those stories become more complicated to reflect a very complex history and so this is an attempt at trying to reckon with the site um, which is very rich and uh, with privilege and how to sort of pass that forward in a way and I like the idea that Actually, the baby steps are the way to go here, particularly in the United Kingdom, where, as you say, people aren't really schooled in the idea of uh, British slavery. Um, they're, they're, if, if, if the word slavery appears in the curriculum at all, it's always about how the British ended it uh, and uh, how decent they were and how, you know, how much sooner they did that than, than, than the Americans did um, and how you know, Britain has dealt with the legacy by having... Uh, gifted the world cricket um, and uh, occasionally conceded that uh, Caribbeans are better at playing it than, 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 uh, than, than England is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, that, that seems to be a, about the limit. And so shocking people into, into realising that actually mm -hmm. you know, empire remains, which is, uh, again, the, um, the, 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 the wonderfully ambiguous title of one of the, uh, the projects that you're working on. Mm -hmm. um, th that, that, I think, is important. But, but then I guess the, the, 
the, the worry with the idea of phytoremediation is that actually when plants lock away toxins, um, the plants themselves then become toxic mm -hmm. uh, and you just transfer the toxins from one site to another. Uh, it, it, that actually can be a very powerful metaphor for describing what's going on. And I, I wonder whether then um, the, the, the question that, that should follow is, OK, well, what's growing on the land now? Um, you know, after uh, sugarcane has burned through the island, um, and after, as you mentioned before, before we uh, went on air about the the, the absence of wood, um, what what's what's left, um, and in what way does empire remain in that active sense? Mm -hmm. So the particular site that I live on um, and have been engaged with has been in our family since the 1920s, so almost 100 years. My great grandmother acquired it. Um, and my brother has been managing it as a dairy farm. So he transitioned it out of sugar to dairy 30 years ago. So it's a, just over 100 acres and um, it, there's basically grass and grass fed cows and that they produce milk. Um, some of the lands that have been a, sort of abandoned, what we refer to as Rab lands, which is the, the title of the exhibition, uh, part, part of the title of the exhibition, uh, this ground beneath my feet, a chorus of bush in Rab lands. So the Rab lands are these sort of stony, gravelly lands that were not particularly fertile. So maybe the enslaved or the indentured <coughs> areas would have been um, relegated to that because they weren't particularly fertile grounds. Um, so what I'm seeing is that a lot of the abandoned sugarcane fields are now Rab lands, and it's where you're seeing uh, these wild plants are growing. Um, Sugarcane plantations broke the plantations down into fields, and each field was named. And those names have survived for several hundred years. So um, it was a way to, you know, if you're working with a gang and they would move into Upper Orchard or Lower Gittens or Holyfield or Kingline, and those names continue to exist. But what's interesting to me about these wild plants is that they're ignoring all of these borders. And it's like this sort of quiet revolution happening in the fields where they're sort of asserting their presence against the way in which um, Sacrum officinarum, the scientific name for sugarcane, was very orderly put into those fields. So what you're seeing in the physical landscape now is some sugarcane, a lot of sort of abandoned fields, and then former fields that have become golf courses, hmm. right? So there's this transition to tourism, which is the main industry now that we support, um, and this sort of bucolic, um, uh, almost rolling English countryside that is promoted as a way to um, support this desire on the part of lots of tourists to see this sort of colonial landscape. Um, so the, the, the golf courses become, uh, have, are, are sort of, they're emerging out of, uh, out of the former sugarcane fields as well as housing and hotels. So a lot of the coastal plantations are now hotels. So. And are the tourists who visit Barbados mostly British or where are they coming from? A lot would be British, obviously American, uh, Canadian, German and Caribbean. And, and, we, yeah. and do you get do you get um, when, you know, Americans and British people visit these islands? Is there a consciousness of of these brutal histories or is it, oh, this is just this beautiful landscape and gorgeous English like countryside? I mean, I think a lot of people come on holiday to escape. Yeah. Right? So 
there are some people that don't necessarily want to engage with that history. But then there are more critical thinking travelers now that are traveling all over the world that want to understand spaces through art and culture and and heritage tourism. Um, But some of those people are finding that the um, museums that they go to are not dealing properly with the history. Um, And so... I think the people that are providing that history feel that the history is too difficult to speak about. And so there's a kind of a, I don't know the term, maybe like it's not whitewashing exactly, but it's like a sanitized version of what happened. Uh, So there was a Danish artist that came in to do a residency and she went to a number of the museums and she called one of the uh, managers on one of these um, kind of sites, you know, where is the mention of, you know, the slave trade in here. And he said, well, we, we don't want to talk about that because it makes tourists uncomfortable. And she said, but you're not telling the full story. So I think there's a kind of a, maybe people feel there's a lack of language or they're not quite sure how to speak about it, mm. right? And so it's, I think that we need to to work on that. Yeah. So, can I, you used some language earlier on that I'm, I'm wondering, well, I'm sort of wondering what, what white Creole does both in the Caribbean, but also how that translates to, say, the United States um, as a, I mean, behind all of this is is an idea about healing and about uh, recognising a complicity in the past of some fairly unspeakable acts and then trying to figure out what one does with that and where one goes. Um, And in the Caribbean, I I imagine that 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 takes a particular valence and in the United States, that takes a completely different one, uh, living as we do under, you know, an era where it's it's increasingly okay to be a white supremacist. Um, So I'm I'm wondering if if, if there are ways that what your, whether your project uh, can succeed in its own terms and how it translates over here. Yeah, that term Creole is complex, right? Because it, it, um, it inhabits bodies differently depending on where you are so maybe um in the u.s virgin islands it's not a term that's necessarily used um here i noticed i think it was with beyonce there was a lot of critique around her using it because it meant that she was separating herself from blackness uh, whereas in the Caribbean, the origin of the term coming out of uh, like the 1700s was a way for uh, British people to separate themselves from white Caribbean people. So if I would get on a boat and go to England in the 1700s and see myself as white, I was absolutely not received as white in England because of my proximity to blackness. Not only that Possibly my blood might have been tainted by blackness because of uh, the mixing of people, but because of the way I spoke, because of how I ate, because of my cultural norms. And so the term white Creole was a way to preserve the purity of white English people against white Caribbean people. And so that that was a way to I mean, purity is is what's really important in this sense of white supremacy. Right. Um, So it. So Creole, it's it's actually a term that I I uh, grew up with from my father who bred horses and Creole horses. If you brought in a mare from Ireland on a ship and it landed in Barbados and she was pregnant, once that foal was born in Barbados, that was a Creole horse. And that mm. was the same thing around the human body. Uh, so if you were born in the Caribbean as a white person, you were you were Creole. Uh, um, 
part of the exhibition here includes um, an, an audio project called the White Creole Conversation Project. And it's an attempt to do just that, to unpack the complexity of that word. Um, and there is some hesitation around my showing it here because the context is very different. And I think white studies in the United States is normally associated with a particular kind of white supremacy. But if you're born as a white person in the Caribbean, it's very different than if you're born as a white person in the U.S. because you're part of a minority and you're empowered in the Caribbean. Whereas here you're part of a, a majority and can also be empowered. And I think being on the fringe of empire as a white person in the Caribbean makes it for a very different experience than being a white uh, American person. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a complicated term that just resonates differently wherever you go. And I think it was my attempt is to try and show that it's not a simplistic uh, history. It's not a simp it's not a simplistic term um, and it needs to be. And it, it's also dynamic. So language is is shifting. Right. Nothing is fixed. We want to think it's fixed or teach it as in a fixed way, but we can't. It's complicated. It's shifting all the time. I, so I. Yesterday, before I came, I went to have, uh, if I can have an, uh, share an anecdote here, I went to have a swim, as I tend to do on a Sunday. And I came out of the sea and I went to the standpipe to wash the sand off my feet. And there was a black Barbadian filling his bucket. He was washing cars and he was filling his bucket with water. And so I stood there and he pulled the bucket away from me to wash my feet. And I said, good morning. And he looked at me and he said, you white or you brown? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think you white, but you really brown. <laughs> but as a Bajan, you would be white or a Barbadian, but somewhere else you would look brown. But you really clear skin. Clear skin, you know, is a term that would be used to also suggest some kind of mixing. And so he is able to read very clearly that I'm a white local person. I'm not pure white because of, there has been mixing. So my maternal great-grandfather was a colored man, which was the term that would have been used in the 1870s when he was born. And he's able to read that level of complexity. Um, and then when I'm here, I'm most often read as Hispanic. If I'm Jamaica, I'm read as brown. If I'm in Trinidad, I'm a red girl. So that term Creole begins to suggest uh, and the unpacking of it by all of the 25 conversations that are part of the project begins to unpack how that term is used differently. You know, um, I was thinking about our uh, the last show that we we just put up was with Breeze Harper and she mentions this one thing and she said that ignorance is a space of privilege. So um, and I was thinking a lot about that in terms of this book that Marlon James came out with, Brief History of Seven Killings, which is set in Jamaica. And a lot of the characters in that book are having this internal dialogue with themselves about their personal relationships, but also this layer that they're bringing with them about their color and the positionality that that affords them in different spaces. And especially in terms of what it means to be Jamaican, but want to go to the United States, and then what, what are they going to look like there? And they're constantly having these dialogues with themselves. So there's this these internal um, negotiations of uh, identity and image, and then there's the external. And I wonder about you know when you're having these bush tea services, are you you know what 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 types of things have you been hearing people say about the way that they imagine their own identities and some some of the the ways that they're reimagining identity through um, partaking in this. <sighs> So there, there's a lot of variety. I mean, some people will say, 
I don't see race, which is, you know, uh, I guess you would say this is a very privileged position to not not be able to see race is a, is a, is a mark of privilege and, and, and not seeing themselves, not seeing race is like they don't even recognize that that is um, could be problematic. Um, uh, let me think. Um, I mean, there's so many kinds of conversations I've been having between the Empire Remain Shop and this white Creole conversation project. I mean, I think in Barbados, in some ways, it's almost impossible not to be conscious of, of race. Well, or maybe that's not true. It depends on the experience you come from. I mean, you can still go to a function in Barbados. I can go to a function in Barbados and there's 300 white people or what you wouldn't consider them white here, but 300. And I can go to a function where there are 300 black people. And so there's still this sort of these parallel realities that, that continue to exist that, that have, you know, there's a historical r reason for that. Uh, I would say that that's beginning to change. Um, of course, with independence, there's an, a huge shift. There's a black government, there's a black civil service, there's a black, um, you know, police, judiciary system. So, I mean, if it makes sense, 95% of the population is black, maybe just less than 3% is white. Then there's a small population of um, Indians, merchants, Muslim, Hindu, Syrian, Lebanese. is a strong Jewish or small Jewish population, but have been there from 1654, fleeing wow. religious persecution that came in through Brazil to bring the technology of producing sugar into Barbados, uh, which is where the windmills came in. So it's, it, you know, they're very small, but there's, I mean, we have like the, one of the oldest um, working uh, Jewish synagogues in the Western world. So it's this kind of complicated mix, but we don't often see it as that. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. It's kind of gone tangential. Um, I'm really I'm curious about you know especially in England or in these places where the the I, the idea has com completely been erased or there's there's a project about cultural amnesia that has happened in the U.S. in England around slavery. Is there any discussion about reimagining those spaces? Right. Think? So uh, what I would share is that two years ago I was in Scotland for doing a cultural project for the Commonwealth Games, which is the the you know this sporting kind of this gathering of people from the commonwealth that engage in a sporting kind of platform and i went to the kelvin grove museum in glasgow which had an exhibition called how glasgow flourished from 1734 uh, and of course glasgow like bristol and liverpool and london are all built on this, the transatlantic slave trade and there was no acknowledgement of that in this enormous museum uh, there was a teapot with a decal uh, on it that had two women sitting uh, next to a table and a, a small black child that was the only sort of reference and then there was this list of attributes that successful Glaswegian men had one was access to cheap labor mm. and I was amazed that in 2014 an entire board of an enormous museum and a curatorial team could get away <laughs> with putting on an exhibition like that for the Commonwealth. Um, and then the Tate had an exhibition recently about the empire. And there was a lot of critique uh, within people that I'd speak, been speaking with in the art community that, again, it was kind of glossing over uh, the reality of what the empire is. Um, recently, there was an MP in England, whose name I have forgotten, uh, who was like on the cover of The Guardian speaking about gold medals being won by the empire mm. in Brazil. 
last month for the Olympic Games. Um, so I think that kind of amnesia is um, is really like we need to deal with that or the prime minister coming to uh, the British prime minister coming English prime minister coming to Jamaica and saying that we you know we don't wish to talk about reparations we'll you know contribute funding to building a, a prison hmm. didn't go down particularly well um <laughs> wow. yeah Incredible. I wonder if we could back up and um Talk a little bit about the ecological effect that all those um, years and years and years of sugar production had on the land. Because you talk about detoxifying the land, so w w what exactly happened to it with all that sugar? And did, did sugar production in the 20th century move toward the sort of chemical dependency that we see in other, in other crops? Mm -hmm. um, so when I think about detoxifying the land, I think about it in two ways. I think about it, one, in terms of obviously the, the brutality of the transatlantic slave trade and, uh, you know, what would have happened on the landscape to people, to women's bodies, to, um, you know, that, that sort of trauma. Uh, I would say the introduction of uh, chemicals would have been more heightened, uh, probably the 1950s. And uh, so chemicals, Roundup, weedicides, pesticides would have been used quite a lot. Uh, so there would be concern about that because Barbados is a limestone island. And so the water filters are these underground aquifers mm -hmm. that capture water that we use for drinking. And so there's concern about the runoff that is uh, goes through this kind of beautifully naturally filtrated system through the limestone um, and that getting into the to the potable water is of great concern and how that tires the soil out um, prior to the use of the pesticides I would say that probably there was probably some healthy farming practices in that in in the rows between the cane I think it was rather unique to Barbados they would have planted a lot of uh, ground provisions so things like eddos and yam and sweet potato and that kind of thing so there was some rotation of crops uh, when you planted a new cane plant that would have you would have a ratoon that would go for four years and then you would maybe leave the ground fallow or you would put carrots or onions or something else in it allow it to sort of rejuvenate um, so I think that there's healing around um, both the more recent use of pesticides, but also the history of this kind of slaughterhouse that really sits beneath the fields that um, I think is something that is simmering underneath. And it sort of comes out in maybe there's an incident that happens and then this very inappropriate language starts to surface. Like there was the disappearance of a, um, a white middle class woman last year that um, a huge search engine went out to look for her and then it sort of spawned a lot of vitriol in the community um, that she was receiving different kind of attention and uh, support than the average black Barbadian would receive. And so I think sometimes things like that happen and it, it comes out in an inappropriate way and there isn't a sort of a language to speak about it because I don't, I'm not sure that we've dealt with it properly. But it reminds me of uh, another country. I mean, you d d described it where it's possible to uh, for a, a white minority to go and um, be at a party and see only white faces. And it reminds me of South Africa. Um, and one of the ways, well, I mean, one of the, the, the big frustrations in South Africa at the moment is that while uh, the language of the rainbow nation uh, is very compelling and makes for good sporting events, even though South Africa loses everything, um, there's this moment of, uh, of recognition that actually 
the ground beneath your feet matters and who, who owns it matters. And so I, I wonder where the, the, the conversation about reparations is at in the Caribbean, uh, not least because that, that's something that's, that's a very live issue in the United States, increasingly, which I'm very excited about, but something that, that, that's caused a great deal of tension in South Africa. And again, you know, when one hears about these, these kinds of dynamics, um, food can, can help occasion and spark different kinds of conversations in relationships to uh, one's history. But the, the present surely has to be about who controls the land and not just what grows on it. Mm-hmm. So that conversation around reparations is happening at a CARICOM level. So CARICOM mm. is sort of our, it's like the acronym for Caribbean community, and it's similar to the European Union. So it's this collective of 20 countries in the Caribbean um, that have basically signed a treaty around uh, trade relations, creating a single market, supposedly working towards the free movement of people, which hasn't happened entirely yet. Um, And they presented to British Parliament last June a case for reparations. So it was presented by Hilary Beckles, who's the head of the University of the West Indies, which is a regional university that has campuses in Jamaica, Trinidad and Barbados. And it's like a nine or 10 or 12 point plan that speaks about addressing particular things. It's not about asking for a check to just sort of say, OK, here's a check and we'll pay our our wages for for this uh, this history. But it's about addressing issues around education, possibly providing scholarships, looking at building cultural institutions, dealing with health related issues like diabetes, which people think are connected to a particular history that we have. Um, I'm not entirely sure that Britain wants to engage with that. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I think it's important that we go and we present this conversation and that the conversation happens. but I, I'm not sure what we're going to get on the receiving end of it. And of course, now Brexit has happened. Uh, I'm not quite sure that that's going to be on the forefront of anybody's mind in England or Britain for the next couple of years, because that will also have an impact on things. So the mm-hmm. devaluation, the sterling drops. It means that tourism becomes a more expensive um, experience for British people. So that will impact on the tourist trade, our own relationship through the economic partnership agreement. We need to think about renegotiating all of these treaties. Um, so, you know, but we also have to think about reparations outside of what the United Kingdom makes decisions on right. for ourselves mm-hmm. in terms of leadership. So there are issues around governance, transparency, corruption, nepotism we have to think about that from our own perspective you know to be responsible within that how do we alter the educational system how does it become a system that reflects um our what we need to learn um so i think reparations also has to happen from within the caribbean and on that on that question the land holdings right now so the population you said is 95 percent black Did, Mm -hmm. did i get that right and I'm guessing land holdings are still skewed toward that sort of settler yeah. legacy. So, so how is that playing out? I mean, I think the conversation generally is that the economic power is still largely within the white population, which is obviously a very small minority. That has been changing slightly post-independence and continues to change. I haven't been able to find statistics, and I'd be really interested to see how that has changed, because I think we need to benchmark that so that as this transition happens, that we should be conscious of um, 
increasing ownership of businesses by black Barbadians. I mean, certainly the middle class has expanded hugely. Um, when we became independent 50 years ago this year, um, free education was set up. So it means that a lot of people have migrated from working on fields in villages connected to plantations and now have access to free education at the primary, secondary and tertiary level up until two years ago. So our university, you now have to pay fees. But um, so that has really made a, a huge difference in terms of educating the local population. So that transition is happening. But I actually can't tell you with any authority what the breakdown is in terms of ownership of businesses based on race, because I don't know it. And I'm not sure if that research has been done or made public, because I think, yeah, it's complicated. The, the sort of post-independence boom in tourism has been distributed more equally it's people are it is lifting more people out of poverty yeah the benefits are more broadly based you would say yeah i think so i mean there are certainly hotels that are owned by black barbadians and and white barbadians there would still be hotels that are foreign owned as well um but yeah, no, there's definitely a transition. I mean, just laws are changing to create more equity. Um, but the sense is is that economic power still is very much within the hands sure. of the white population. Yeah. And so we're coming up on the hour, and I'm wondering if there's something you kind of want to leave us with. I probably want to speak a little bit about some of the work in the exhibition and a kind of a social practice project that I've been engaged with. Yeah. So um, I was invited to come and show a body of work. So there's a solo exhibition that's opening on Thursday night. It's curated by Holly Bino, who is the chief curator of the National Art Gallery in the Bahamas. And she's coming in on, on Wednesday night. So we'll have a, the opening on Thursday and a panel and then um, a, a panel conversation also on the on the Friday. Um, a, a lot of the drawings are on plantation ledger pages and the ledger pages are a way to ground the work in the model of the plantation and to kind of intervene something alternate to a kind of a single economic reading of the plantation. So including the shards, including these other objects, narratives, voices, in an attempt to say that the plantation is not just about economics. I mean, there are bodies and relationships that have been formed through this this history. And so, for example, there's a, a suite of seven. Uh, it's called Francis. And so I have a will from 1816 written by Thomas Applewit, who was the owner of Walker's, which was called um, Willoughby's Plantation uh, prior to that. And in the will, he he refers to Francis as his favorite girl slave. And so I remember reading this for the first time late one night in the studio. And of course, I knew that they were enslaved people on this land, but it was something to read their names. It became more... Um, poignant, I guess, to put a name to these people who generally have been silenced and sort of wondered why was she his favorite girl slave? Was she his concubine? Was she his outside daughter? And he spends quite a bit of time in the will writing about her. He offers her manumission six years after his death and leaves 10 pounds to the church for her to buy clothes every year and request that his granddaughters take care of her. And so I've been drawing these shards that are in the tea service and I use a, a series of drawings of these shards to map out her name. So there are a suite of seven drawings on ledger pages. Each one has the letter that spells her name out. 
Um, and then there's the White Creole Conversation Project. There's some other drawings on ledger pages. Um, and then I think probably the last thing I would mention is a project called the Fresh Milk Art Platform, which is a, um, a project I developed five years ago that exists out of my studio on Walkers as a, um, a place that is a kind of a nurturing site for young artists on the island. We have a library of about 3,000 books and it very consciously thinks about phytoremediation as a way to offer a nurturing space to all Barbadians. So it opens up this form of plantation to become a site where it allows for creativity and community and critical thinking and critical reading to happen. So it's, I think all of these things, the serving of tea as a nurturing act, uh, the, the creating a critical space on, on, on the dairy, formerly a plantation as an act of nurturing, as of solidarity, of decolonizing the space, of moving against the grain of history to um, provide uh, a space where creative, critical thinking people can gather, uh, also becomes part of the work, teaching, even working with the British Council as a way to have a relationship with Great Britain through the arts from the perspective of the Caribbean and what we need is all part of the work. Beautiful. Is there something, just really quickly, um, because it is through the arts, do you think that um, art allows for space for discussion about this that other areas just wouldn't yeah there's something about like poetry and creative thinking and the creative act that m maybe moves to something at a visceral level as well as an intellectual level that allows us to move inside these sort of cracks and crevices in a way that maybe you know certainly there's room for hard economics or um you know history but there's something, I think, about being moved uh, by a work of art uh, that allows you to maybe experience something differently. And there's a lot of there's a lot of power, I think, in art to do that. I think these teacups themselves are a really fantastic way of kind of queering is a word that comes to mind the 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 sort of idea of, of of drinking tea because they're you know immediately sort of impractical because they the, the <laughs> tea leaks through <laughs> but and it forces you to ask questions about what these shards are and it sort of makes you think about tea in a new way mm -hmm. and immediately sparks conversation yeah. what are these shards what what are their holes in my teacup right um, why is it so hard to, to drink this tea? There's something that, that people have become used to being very easy. Right. Tea is this very easy thing you don't right. think about very much. Right. And suddenly this object is making you ask all kinds of questions about yeah. it. And then this, the, the flavor of the tea itself is mm -hmm. so different from sort of black tea, mm -hmm. and that raises all these questions as well. So mm -hmm. I think right here in this right. object, you've done something amazing. Thank you. I mean, I think it also brings it into the contemporary because uh, we, we need to think about where we put our money and what we buy. So at some point in the abolitionist period in, in, in Britain, women stopped buying tea and sugar that was grown by enslaved labor. So the power that we have as consumers uh, in this world of globalized trade is, is in, we need to take that power and think about where we're going to invest our invest our money. So that was uh, a conversation that happened in the abolitionist movement. And as I would mentioned, Robert Southey, who spoke about it as a blood sweetened beverage, prompted uh, some people to withdraw their money and to look at 
buying these products from, uh, you know, I guess what we would call today fair trade. Uh, so it's I think it's important to bring it into the contemporary as well, you know, because these issues around um, enslaved labor are still happening around the world today. This is not something that's grounded in history only. I think there's also something really empowering about um, the knowledge that you share through these the tea itself through the through the leaves, you know, and and as a woman, I think like that type of like medicinal teas and these medicinal things that mothers share with their daughters as lessons to empower yourself and take care of yourself, even though you might be in kind of a, a system where you don't always have access to reproductive mm-hmm. um, services or services as a woman to take care of your own body. So mm-hmm. that that is really important. And I, and I think it's, it's really something cool that you're bringing attention to. So. Thanks. Yeah, the idea of nurturing, I think, feels like there are so many dark things happening in the world right now. It's kind of a scary place. So I think that, um, yeah, the idea of nurturing and taking care and really using it as a moment to pause and have extended conversation. I'm so grateful to have this time with you all today because there isn't lots of time to have extended conversation. And so I think the act of serving the tea and using it as a moment of pause to be able to have an extended kind of dialogue is also important right now in this pre-election period right here in the US, in the post-Brexit moment in the UK, uh, in conversations around reparations and independence in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But we shouldn't end on that. No. No, I I just want to make one more comment. And then I also love this idea that of in these sugar fields where sugar has come and gone, it's its place, it, you know, it made all this money for people, it caused all this destruction. It hardly hurt all these people, and now it's gone. But these plants that nourish people, that, that nourish the workers on the plantations, somehow are, are still flourishing. And I, I think it's a great way to think about the past and the future at the same time. And yeah. what sort of moving forward, forward without forgetting what happened in the past. Yeah, and it's also increasing biodiversity, right? So yeah. you're seeing more butterflies, and it's just lovely to see this proliferation of wild plants that embody within themselves these amazing properties that can heal. Um, I think it's a I used to look at these sort of rablands in a disparaging kind of way and think, gosh, it looks so unkempt and so wild. And then I spoke with this um, professor at the University of the West Indies and he started to speak about it with such sort of love and adoration for these amazing plants that have all of these qualities that I thought this is really an amazing way for the land to speak to us. And so the the presence of the of the plants and the shards uh, coming out of the ground feels to me like there's this voice that's emanating from these fields and these stories need to be told through art practice, through archaeology, through you know, writing through the fresh milk work. Um, yeah, and it's it's a really powerful symbol, I think, that we have the capacity to self-care, to nurture, to heal, to move forward, and to find new kinds of conversations uh, to transform. Mm-hmm.
Annalie Davis is a Barbadian artist and activist whose work addresses the complicated legacy of slavery in the Caribbean. We spoke with her at the KUT studios in Austin, Texas, where she was preparing to open her show, This Ground Beneath My Feet, a chorus of Bush in Rablands at the John L. Warfield Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her exhibition is on view until December 15, 2016. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpott, and I will talk with the chair of the Nutrition and Food Studies Department at New York University, Krishnendu Ray, about his book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, the current political landscape, and where change and transformation is possible through food. You can subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes or find our archive and more information about the show at thesecretingredient.org. Special thanks to our intern, Shelby Hicks, and our wonderful engineer, David Alvarez, from KUT in Austin, Texas, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. Independent public service journalism has never been more important than it is right now. From COVID-19 to primary elections, KUT is here to help you make sense of it all. Show your support with a gift today at KUT.org. And thanks.